If you can't yeah. find one thing that you would like to see changed about your company, you should be fired. I tell my wife five, six times a day what's wrong with her. <laughs> <laughs> we could just get rid of all the customers. We could just keep the money and get rid of the customers. Firewalls. Firewalls. Yeah. DNS. You're listening to Working Code with your hosts, one of whom probably just wrote a new JavaScript library, Adam, Ben, Carol, and Tim. Okay, here we go. It is show number 154. And on today's show, we're going to talk about pre-mortems and the lost art of log levels. Or we're going to try to, at least. (laughs) Once again... Got the whole crew here. Welcome back, Carol. Sorry you weren't feeling well last week. Yeah, lots of traveling. You know, always get sick from that. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. And it, Tim, it looks like it is your turn to go first to start us off with our triumphs and fails. Triumphs and fails. Yeah, so I, I don't know if this is a tri- I guess it's a triumph. Nothing bad has happened. So it's been a very <laughs> quiet week. You know, everyone's, you know, seems to be gearing up for Thanksgiving. You know, customers really are haven't been contacting us we're you know, we're working on stuff but it's like it's kind of built building lots of tests so that makes adam cameron very happy actually I have, I have a question because you work at a company that's owned by a company that owns lots of companies mm-hmm. do the holidays get normalized across all the companies or are the companies essentially independent operators within some the companies are independent author operators gotcha. right so they 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 don't replace the I mean there's definitely layers above us but yeah each company runs its own like for instance even within our company we have two the people that actually do the the bank settlement their holiday schedule is different from the developers so they have to be at work whenever the banks are working but when the banks are closed they get those days off but it unfortunately means they don't get a we get a whole week off for Christmas so they don't get that because they got to be someone has to be there to to settle to the banks each day that they're actually open. So. Type out the flat file to send for over. Yeah. <laughs> good, old, good, old, good old American financial system. FTP yeah. with humans in the middle. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. So yeah, it's been pretty quiet. And then on the personal front, so I, I, my, I have no longer have any miners in the house. Aww. You get all that legal, got all legal. that cobalt ore out of your basement. Or? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Now my, my daughter, my youngest, my daughter, Lily, she turned 18 Friday. So, Aww. and then you just all, kick her out. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I warned them. She I don't know if they'll. Coming. I don't know if they'll ever leave. <laughs> and I'm okay with that. I told them, you know what? It's, you know, life's hard. If you, you always got three hots and a cot. So, yeah. Yeah, as long as you don't bother me. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> this is something that I always find very fascinating uh, in my lifetime. The idea of kids growing up and then leaving the house you know, roughly around 18 or, you know, college or post-college. That's that's always been the sort of status quo, the expectation to a large degree. But from what I hear on the radio, that's actually a relatively recent concept mm-hmm. from a, from a you know, a human timeline standpoint. Like, I, th- I think only in the last, like, 60 or 70 years has that become yeah, a thing that multi-generational housing used to be, mm-hmm. ex- like, the way to do it and yeah. the way everyone did it. Yeah, that's a hundred percent. Yeah, you look through history; people, you know, stayed with their families a lot longer time. But they would get married and sometimes still, you know, stay. Yeah. When, when I hear about that, all I can think about is how much money I'd be saving. 
Free daycare. Uh, yeah, free yeah. daycare, free room and board. <laughs> the, just the cost of everything is divvied right. up across so many people. It's very yeah. appealing, actually. Sounding. And I think it, you know, as expensive as things have gotten these days, I, you know, I, I think that people might start swinging back toward that. The 20th century, I mean, I mean we, we saw a huge amount of wealth after World War II that, that just came into the country. We, you know, we're, we're spoiled on, super spoiled. Mm-hmm. Um, that's not the norm throughout history, like you were saying, Ben. Not to go off on a wild tangent, but I mean, that's a, a big part of the argument that you hear from polygamists, but also like people like just kind of sharing a house, right? That it's like, mm-hmm. you know, two or three couples living together as a household, like mm-hmm. kind of permanently. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it'd be great if I only had to cook dinner on Monday nights and Thursday nights, you know? Like, I could <laughs> right. easily cook whatever I'm cooking for six people. Yeah. Instead, I got to do it every night. All right. So you're looking for, for roommates? That I hear you saying? Wives. I'm looking for wives. <laughs> <You're> <laughs> wives. Yeah. You want a wife yeah. for you, not, not yeah. for your husband, right? Oh, no, I don't share. I don't share. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that's cool. Anyway, so that, that's me. I don't know if that's a, I guess we'll call that a triumph, but uh, yeah, pr- proud of my girl and what you got, Adam. Cool. Um, I'm going to go with a triumph. When I first, when this first happened and I like wrote it down in my list of things to consider for triumphs and fails, I wasn't sure if I was going to call it a triumph or a fail, but as of now, when I decided to, to use this one, I'm going with it as a, as a big triumph. And that is that, you know, I had this problem and I went to go solve it and it, it became a, an exercise in yak shaving, which if you're not uh, familiar is basically like the, the, well, I won't reference the TV show because probably one in five people out there will get it, but you know, you, you go to do one thing, but in order to do that one thing, you need to do another thing. In order to do the other thing, you have to do a third thing. In order to do the third thing, you have to do a fourth thing. And it just becomes this like giant sprawling thing when really all you wanted to do was like, you know, fix a, a squeaky floorboard, right? And the triumph here is that I did this. I, I, I made not only the small change that I wanted to make, but all of the yak shaving that it encompassed with zero issues because we had automated tests for this like particular part of our product. We, you know, I've talked at length about how we don't have good enough tests everywhere, but we're starting to like grow. And as we add more pieces, we add more test coverage and, you know, I needed to make this change and, and it was a significant change. I was adding config caching. So we, we have a bunch of satellite microservices and one of our more centralized microservices is config, right? So we have a bunch of config saved. And it ex- it's exposed inside of our VPC over an HTTP API. It's a lot of letters. <laughs> um, and and things, you know, microservices and the monolith and everything hit make HTTP requests to that service to get the config settings that they need in order to do their jobs. And we realized at one point, like, we are pretty much DDoSing our own config service in order to <laughs> make our apps run. Like, we're, we're getting to the point where, like, the call's coming from inside the building. <laughs> it's out <laughs> of house. Yeah. And so we were like, you know, as we're kind of having this discussion, like, should we set up auto scaling or just like have multiple instances of the config service running? We're like, you know, what if we just added like a five minute cache on the, the thing in, in the module that does the config lookup? So if you're, if it's running and it's hitting the same stuff over and over, then it'll just pull from the cache instead. And mm-hmm. Again, you know, I had to, a lot of dominoes had to fall to make that happen, but it's working fantastically. And I deployed it on Friday evening with high confidence because the tests all passed Mm -hmm. and I didn't have to worry about it. And it was a nice quiet weekend and 
He's just like, triumph on triumph on triumph, man. Cool. Very cool. We did that with the API that you wrote, Adam. Taffy. But rather than five minutes, we have a config call that, you know, basically it's a config file reader. But, Mm -hmm. you know, we just do it on framework reinitialization. So if we reinitialize it, you know, we know when we're adding to the config file. So you add the config file, push the changes up, and then just run a um, a framework reinitialization. And it grabs the latest stuff. Mm -hmm. Works works good. Yeah. So, you know, once again, tests prove their value. So. Mm -hmm. No worries. Yeah. All right. So that's it for me. How about you, Ben? I am also going to go with a triumph, which is that I, at this point, have some content for every chapter in my book uh, nice. on Feature Flag. Uh-huh. So I'm, I'm feeling pretty pumped about that. And to, to the point where maybe I might try to have some sort of a Cyber Monday pre-sale kind of a thing. Now, um, are you going to do like a beta release or just pre-sale and people can... Wait till it's done to. Get I, their I think I could do a beta release. I, you know, do I it. need to do a read through. Yeah, I need to do one or two read throughs of the book to to make sure that it's not just totally incoherent stuff sliced together chapter wise. But yeah, I think there could be some value there. So, how many chapters you got? Twenty nine, I think, 29. is what it was. I mean, you know, it's, wow. it's not a, it's not like a novel. It's not, it's not massive chapters. Some of the chapters are only a couple of paragraphs, really. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I'm pretty excited. I got to start thinking about pricing. I haven't even thought about anything to that degree. I, I, I saw, happened to see someone on uh, LinkedIn just recently released a book, and they're charging like, you know, charging like thirty four dollars or something like that, which is higher than I had thought about charging for my book. So anyway, that that kind of no, no. You can charge thirty five dollars for it. Thirty four ninety nine, thirty three ninety nine. That's mm-hmm. a totally fine. Now, if we're talking about like you know beta price and early access sort of thing, it's 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 a weird situation because like on one hand, these are the most enthusiastic people, right? They know about it and they're like frothing at the mouth like me to get at it, and so I'm more likely to go ahead and spend that thirty five than your average schmuck off the street who's like finds it on Google, right? Well, but at the same time. There's the concession of like, it is early and it is unpolished. And like, maybe you Well, that's should... the thing too, because yeah. there's zero professional polish here. Meaning that a lot of the books that I see are being published by, you know, O'Reilly and Pact Pub and, and Pragmatic Programmers, where they have editors and they have people who advise on how to put stuff together and, and illustrations and book covers. And I don't have any of that. So I'm just like jamming out here as someone who happens to know how to do some stuff programmatically. Mm-hmm. And the question then becomes like, how much is that polish worth financially speaking? So, well, I mean, I'll tell you right now, years into the existence of my book, this is just on total cruise control. I don't even think about it for holidays or anything. I charge 19 for the ebook and 29 for the paperback. All right. That's actually really helpful. That kind of gives me some sort of a, a gravity you know, to, to hang around. And I mean, to be honest, I, I, you know, having read very little of what I can see in the screenshots of your book, I think there's just going to be more valuable of a book than mine, right? Value-based pricing. What is somebody going to get out of it? We'll so. see. All right, cool. Well, so I'm excited. Do you have a name for the book? Do you have a title? I have been calling it Feature Flags. <laughs> it's, it's Feature Flags from Concept to Cultural Revolution is the subtitle. Okay. 
I didn't, I'm not good at naming things. It's, it's a good place to start. Yeah. But, hey, listen, the original ver- the original title for my book was Rest Web APIs colon the book. <laughs> <laughs> well, my husband fell in love with your dedication page. Thank you. I, so I, for, for people who have not seen it, I was toying around with the idea of having a dedication page that said, dedicated to my wife who reminds me that I can, or no, it was like, dedicated to my wife who tells me that I can do anything, to my dog who loves me unconditionally, and to my editor who reminded me that I can't only mention my dog. <laughs> but I, I, I'm going to, in the, in the official one, I'm going to remove the thing about the editor and just keep it wife and dog, you know. Feels oh, like it's yeah. better, better PR that way. And <laughs> thus far, you are the only editor, right? That's oh, just yeah. a good joke. It is a, yeah, 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 100%, 100%. <laughs> exactly. But I don't know. I, I would also love to get someone to review the book. I mean, that's a thing people do, right? Like so have mm-hmm. someone review the book and leave notes and then they could be, you know, mentioned in the book as, as a reviewer. That's a thing, I think. I mean, right? yeah. your beta readers will probably give you a lot of feedback. They're almost like reviewers, editors. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so one thing I thought, you know, I have all these random ideas that go through my head. I'm like, one thing that I thought would be how would it be insane to, so right now it's in Markdown and then I turn it into HTML and I render that on the page. Would it be crazy to then just copy all of that HTML, you know, like command A, command C and paste it into a Google Doc, and then people who are sort of beta readers give them access to the Google Doc so they can literally come in and highlight and leave comments? Is that is that just asking for trouble? I mean, couldn't you do that in the Git repo too? Well, I don't want to give people access necessarily to the code that's building the site, only because, I don't know, that feels too much, too much behind the, the curtain. Hmm. Although I could... Also, you know, also every individual line in the book, every paragraph is just a single line. Mm-hmm. And then that gets really weird, I think, with, with PRs. Yeah. They look a little strange. So I love where your heart is at there. And maybe let's have a separate discussion offline so that we don't consume podcast time. For yeah, this. yeah, but yeah. I, have, yeah. Okay, I, perfect, I know of perfect. a tool to help with this. And, and you know, the, the point is, I like, I love the idea, right, of being able to like give them a, a dynamic commenting place. Awesome. All right. So that's me. Triumph. I'm pretty happy about that. I'm excited. And kicking it over to Carol to bring us home. Yeah, I'm going to go with a win to you guys. What? So, what? Wait, wait. I know, right? Well, a way to come back. So like a week ago at work, I kind of made a comment to my supervisor that I don't have any work to do because <laughs> my new team isn't really spun up yet. And we don't know what we're going to be working on or how many people I need to hire. So I was like, if you know of anything that anyone's working on that maybe I could go help with, that would be great. So I start working with a team who does nothing but Azure projects. And I get tasked to handle a new chat bot that they're trying to initialize for internal users only. So it's like, hey, are you having a like problem logging in. Cool. What kind of user are you? Like, Ooh, tell me a clippy? little more. <laughs> Don't you wish? I love Clippy. I miss Clippy. It looks like you're trying to log in. 
Yeah, are you? Because maybe you are. But anyway, so today, after working on this, like I said, like maybe a week or so, I finally have the bot able to talk to the app code and vice versa. We get some messages back and forth. And the big deal is that it has to be on a private network. It can't be publicly exposed anywhere because of controls above me. I have no say in lots of things I do now, apparently, which is fine. I'm not going to complain. But it has to be on a private network, which made it very hard to do any work off the VPN and how to actually handle it. And then whenever I was running the project locally, the cyber art or the cyber ops team is like, oh, you can't execute code. It's not allowed. (laughs) So for the week, I've been testing all of this in Postman because that was all I could do. So today I finally was able to get all of my exceptions through and I can run the code locally and I'm able to get the connection to work. So the next step is when I get back from my work trip is I'm going to work with the program office and start working on their actual input database through like cognitive language which is another Azure project or another like Azure tool, I guess. I don't really know what you call it. Anyways, and they're going to build out more of their dictionary for the what the replies automatic are and what the AI does and all of that. So it'd be cool learning that too when I get back. Cool. Is yeah. the is the bot, is, is it an Azure bot? Or yep, is it it's an Azure bot. Okay. Yep, it's an Azure bot, which is an app service, which is just a web interface that I then send my message to, and it connects to the bot, sends it over, and sends it back to the app service. Gotcha. Yep. Very cool. Yeah. So, I, I I can't remember what podcast I was listening to just yesterday or the day before. I think it was some some technology podcast, and they were talking about a company where the entire support team in the call center tried to unionize. And so they fired everybody and replaced their entire support system with uh, the chat GPT based language model mm-hmm. and uh, was letting it run. And then apparently discovered that it was giving people false advice and they had yeah. to shut it down. <laughs> oh, geez. <laughs> surprise, yeah. surprise. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That's me. Winners. <laughs> good yeah. for us. So it's a good week for us. So, yeah. Ben, what are you planning on killing? <laughs> All right, so I'm, I'm sure that many of us at work have taken a project to completion and then it was successful or it was less than successful. And at the end, you have what's usually referred to as a postmortem where you do a retrospective. Dun, dun, dun. Yeah, you do a retrospective on how things went and what things went you know, better than expected or not as well as expected and what we may have been able to do in hindsight to have improved the outcome of the the process. And that's all done after the fact. There is a version of that that actually takes place before any of the work is done at all. And that is, I believe, referred to as a pre-mortem or a pre-post-mortem. And the idea is you're getting ready to start a project. And before you start, you say, okay, now imagine that we have a crystal ball And we're looking into this crystal ball and the crystal ball is telling us that in six months or 12 months when this project is done, it will have failed. And this is not up for debate. It 100% sure is going to fail. So now our job in this pre-mortem is to explore all the reasons why our project failed. And it's a very powerful tool because it frees people up to have uh, negative thoughts 
especially mm-hmm. this is very freeing for people who are perhaps lower in the pecking order of the organization. If you can imagine you're talking about getting a project going and, and all of the, the architects and the senior developers are saying, oh, this is going to be great. This is going to work. And then we'll use this tool and that's going to work. And some new engineer or junior engineer is like, yeah, what about such and such? But they don't feel confident about bringing it up. If you can start the conversation by leaning into the idea that failure is guaranteed, it allows people to throw out those negative thoughts without feeling like they're going to be naysayers or reprimanded. And so is this about, is this about anticipating what could go wrong so that you can build with that in mind to prevent it? Okay. Absolutely. A hundred percent. It's a, it's kind of uncut, you know, turning over all the rocks and finding all of the, the creepy crawlies that may not have been apparent. I, I really only have one hands-on experience with this. And we've talked many times on this podcast about work and about how there is the legacy product at work and there is the modern product and I handle the legacy stuff. Well, we, you know, we call that V6 and V7 at work. Before the building of V7 started, we actually did a pre-mortem to talk about what could go wrong. And it, it was a very, very frustrating process for me because almost almost underscoring the importance of the pre-mortem, there were people in the conversation who kept wanting to talk about all of the things that would go right, that will do this with Golang and performance will be improved and we'll do this with microservices and we can scale independently. And I kept arguing with people, why are you focusing on the positive outcomes? Like we've already talked about the positive outcomes. That's, that's the reason you guys want to do this in the first place. The reason that we have the pre-mortem is to talk about all the that can go wrong. And anyway, that was my personal perspective. But uh, as Tim alluded to in last week's episode, Freakonomics Radio did a recent four-part series on failure, the art of failing gracefully. And in one of the episodes, they actually interviewed the guy who coined the phrase pre-mortem. I think it was, he did it for the military or the Navy or something. And he talked very specifically about that, that it is only supposed to be about the reasons things failed. And I just felt so vindicated that my anger at all these engineers who wanted to focus on the positive outcomes, their, their enthusiasm was misguided in this particular context and that it should have been negative. And I just, I can look back now and, and laugh at them quietly. <laughs> well, I had read the article about this not long ago. So I went to go look it up. I'm like, where did I find this at? Because like my favorite part of it was in the center of it was a picture of a dog like wearing glasses. And it was like, what if I told you there were no stupid questions? <laughs> so it was like it really is like imagine going into it as a junior engineer and you're like oh well how do these connections work like how could this even be a thing well it's up to your architects and to your your top level people to be able to explain the infrastructure to people so there really are no stupid questions so if they understand after like hey this is how it's going to work then they're good but if now they pointed out a flaw then you really know there's an issue yeah absolutely, absolutely. can you like give some sort of a hypothetical but concrete example of a type of thing that you might bring up at one of these? I think things like the cost of maintenance or the financial component of new architectures or new technologies or the number of people that might have to be kept on staff in order to maintain what's been built or, you know, like the number of different technologies that are introduced I, I don't know if I can think of anything like super concrete other than to say it's like whatever little 
wiggling thought that you have in the back of your head where you're like, mm, maybe this is not a great idea. This is the time to bring it up. So, okay, it sounds like this is more of a, not so much like a be imaginative, but more of like a, if you're having any doubts whatsoever, like it's an airing of grievances, right? Like just let's get it out there and and make everyone aware that somebody's thinking about this. Yeah, absolutely. I wonder how you avoid getting into, we, we talked about premature optimization, right? Yep. So if you start getting really creative with the what ifs, what ifs? The, 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 you know, <laughs> yeah. like, you know, what what if a cosmic ray does a bit flip and, you know, uh-huh. elects the wrong person, you know, how, how do you avoid getting out of this? Because I've never heard of this this before. This is my first time hearing about pre-mortem. So yeah, how, how do you, how's that avoided? Do you know? That is a great question. I, I would only hazard a guess that the goal is not necessarily to solve all the problems that brought up, that get brought up. I think it's more about making sure that all of the things are at least acknowledged and considered. And then everything becomes a trade off. You know, maybe this is something that gets brought up. It's a possibility. It's not worth the effort that it would take to solve that problem, but at least at least we knew about it and we considered it and we decided not to do it. I, I think that is at least a value add beyond we didn't even think to consider this in the first place. But, but I agree that there has to be a line drawn somewhere. Otherwise, you just, you, you, it becomes so overwhelming that you can't take the first step forward. Yeah, this is definitely something that takes some discipline, right? It's so hard when you get an idea and a project in front of you and you're like, okay, let's go. You know, it's like, you want to get that fingers on keyboards and start, you know, producing code because that's what we do, right? We, that is the measurable output yeah. of our work. And so much of what makes code good is the immeasurable parts of the job. And, and also, you know, very much to your point, as I've be as I've matured in my career, I have begun to see the value of action that we spend so much time as organizations hand wringing and debating this and debating that and then not doing anything. And you realize that the people who can just do something are actually quite amazing. Yeah, it doesn't like have it to also, be perfect. It just, just has to be done. Right. I feel like it also opens up the door for like a safe environment to speak yes. of things breaking, right? Like we so often, you know, start building our project and it doesn't work. And rather than talking about it, we bang our heads on our keyboard for two days trying to figure out what could possibly be wrong. Where if it was normal to talk about the failures and what could happen, then you ask those questions a lot earlier and you understand that failure is just part of being a developer. Yeah. If I can throw out an example of maybe something that I'm thinking of, right? So again, a hypothetical project, but it's a concrete thought, right? So let's just say the the rough plan, I, I don't know exactly where this pre-mortem falls in the timeline of, of decision-making, but you know, let's say we're, we've decided that we're going to build this thing and we're going to do it with a uh, stack of new <laughs> technologies we've never used before. Something I might be worried about is like, okay, we're trying three new technologies and we don't know, we don't have any significant experience in any of them. And so the thing that most concerns me there initially is schedule slip, mostly because in my experience, like writing, writing code, learning a language is not that hard, 
what's the hardest part is like, how do I write testable code and how do I write the tests and figure out the test frameworks and the mocking and stuff that's right. necessary to, to do that part well. Like, it might take me four hours to write a small feature and another three to four days to figure out how the tests should work and work and, and work them out, get them done. I think that's a totally valid point. Uh, you know, failure doesn't necessarily mean we couldn't do the work. Failure in this case could just be, we didn't meet a specific deadline mm-hmm. that we had in mind. And why is that? And is there anything we can do to cut scope or to adjust the choices to maybe be able to meet that deadline more effectively? But yeah, totally. So, okay. That's yeah, and that's where I was headed. It's like, okay, so if that is somebody's concern that they bring up at a pre-mortem, what, where does the discussion go? Or does that just get written down? Like we're having a brainstorming session and everybody writes these things down or, you know, somebody writes these things down and then it, it's on the wall there to everybody to walk by on your way in and out of the office every day. Or what's hmm. the, what is that the is a great question. I, I have put of this meeting. I, I, I will tell you that when we did it at work and forgive me, this was like five years ago at this point, it was a Google doc that we were all sort of working on collaboratively at the time. And then, so you would put down your concern and then, you know, you could highlight it and leave comments on other people's concerns and they could do it for yours as well. What happened to that Google Doc? Who consumed it? How was it used in subsequent decision-making? I don't think I know. I do. If you told me that no one ever looked at it again and it added no value to the process whatsoever, I would 100% believe you in our particular case. Mm -hmm. Uh, I mean, at but, the very least, you know, the, the people that were there heard what was said and it, you know, it's almost impossible to not be affected by that, even if it's yeah. a small, subtle amount, but yeah. Yeah. Uh, so the other, one of the other podcasts that I really enjoy listening to, at least, you know, on and off as we talked about in other episodes is a podcast series called how I built this. And it is just is that the one Guy Raz. Yes, Guy Raz. Okay, exactly. Yeah. It's part of the NPR series of podcasts, and, and and all it is is him interviewing CEOs and leaders and companies. Usually, these people have just really fascinating stories: where they came from, where they get the ideas, how many times they've been at companies that have completely failed, or how they've pivoted, you know, three or four times to get the company to where it is. Very interesting stuff. And he was interviewing, I want to say it was the CEO of Kinko's. It was, it was one of the printing companies. I think it was Kinko's. And he was saying that what he would do is Kinko's for, for anyone listening here. It's a, like a breakfast cereal for adults. (laughs) (laughs) It's like an on-demand print and photocopy shop. And he would call up his store managers every month and say, tell me one thing that you did to improve the process that we gave you. And if you don't have one thing to tell me, it's going to be a problem and you better have something to tell me next month. And it's, it's not a pre-mortem, but it is him positioning the conversation from the perspective that the things we tell you to do and the way we organize the store and the way we organize the process are problematic in some way. And as you as the person on the ground are going to feel that most directly. And you better have one, taken actions to improve upon it. And two, you know, tell me about it so that I can share it with the rest of the store locations. But it's giving people that freedom to feel and do something about the problems that they're seeing. And that's, you know, it's a, it's a different take on this kind of thing where we're leaning into the idea that failure is possible and then giving people the opportunity to 
express and consume and to fix it if possible. I like it. You know, it, it, you could imagine doing something like that, certainly in a meeting at work where it, it's one thing to say, hey, does anybody have any suggestions for stuff we can change? And everyone's sort of like, mm, you know, no, stuff's, stuff's kind of kind of fine, whatever. It's very different than saying, okay, you have 15 minutes. Everyone has to come up with at least one thing that they would fix about this company. Right. And then we'll talk about it. And you don't, there's, there's no longer, I don't want to call it the excuse, but there's no longer an opportunity for someone to just shrug and be like, no, things are fine. Like you have to embrace the idea that there is stuff that is wrong and I'm giving you permission to now talk about it. If you can't yeah. find one thing that you would like to see changed about your company, you should be fired. Yeah. I tell my wife five, six times a day what's wrong with her. <laughs> <laughs> if we could just get rid of all the customers, we could just keep the money and get rid of the customers. Things Firewalls. Firewalls. Yeah. DNS. <laughs> um, cool. Well, oh, I actually did have one other question and maybe... Maybe it's not the time or the place to ask it, but I'll ask it anyway. Is is there a clear and or obvious like minimum threshold of some sort when this becomes a useful exercise? Like, you know, uh, hey, I need you to change the shade of blue on the submit button. Right? <laughs> Should we have a pre-mortem for that? Probably not. Like, so where's the line? That's a great question. I have no idea other than to say, I think when the path to a successful outcome feels unsure or is is farther away than what we would normally consider but i don't really have a concrete way to articulate that yeah yeah i would like to think if projects have failed over and over again it should be the norm that you start talking about your failures at the beginning of any big project like if you're constantly missing deadlines and you're constantly running into issues with your systems admin people with how you get IPs assigned for subnets to what you need to be running, you should start talking about what could go wrong at the beginning of every big project to prevent those big impacts to timelines. That's an excellent point. And it makes me mm. think of the Phoenix project. I feel like maybe those meetings he was having with the, the crazy, what was his name, Eric or whatever? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Where like take him a little bit further down the process yeah. of like figuring out how to run this thing. Like maybe that was pre-mortems for like where he was at in the process. I don't know. Just a random thought. Well, and I also love the idea. We've talked about this a couple of times. Amazon has this concept of one-way doors and two-way doors. Mm-hmm. A two-way door being a decision that you can reverse if it doesn't work out. Mm-hmm. Certainly, I think if you're going down a one-way door where you're going to make a decision and that decision is not easily reversible that that feels definitely like something where you want to game out all the possible things that can go wrong. For sure. Cool. That was a good topic. Groovy. Yeah. Cool. So I guess that brings us to the other topic, which was my idea, the the lost art of log levels, which is not so much like, let's talk about this awesome thing and more of a Adam has questions and he's going to rely on the wisdom of his peers here. So it, it could be a short one. it's been weighing sort of heavily on my mind for like years now that i feel like maybe we've sort of lost a little bit of the wisdom gained from our uh, computing forebears so i don't have a whole lot of experience mostly just in school writing like c and you know those low level languages old school stuff and I know that there's probably some tooling that we've you know reinvented or maybe we haven't yet reinvented 
but basically log levels, right? So probably most of us are familiar with, you know, spitting out an error message or something and, and you know, you say maybe this one's fatal or it's not, you know, and you've got like info and trace and warning and error and fatal and, and debug. Yes. So these are all examples of log levels and the, my understanding, which admittedly upfront is half-baked, is like basically you have all these logs that you're spitting out from your application because eventually they could be useful. And then where the real sort of magic comes in, in my head, this is you know not a real thing that I'm aware of anymore, or at least with modern technologies. You have a log viewer and you say, okay, only show me the fatal things or show me error and fatal or show me warning error and fatal, right? So it's like you're like, descending into the depth and the further down you go the more information you're getting and you're always like adding you're never like show me only the info you're like info and everything prior to that right and if you and i've run into this in at least the mac os console right if you use whatever your app launcher of choices and you launch the console app you can see in there you know there's a bunch of log messages constantly being spit out of constantly. various applications and and then like so you record for a couple of seconds and then you hit the stop button and then there's like little ways to say okay show me I, the the more recent versions of mac i played with it a little bit recently and it, it doesn't seem to have as much depth or i haven't found it you know maybe it's hiding from me but there is you know there's like messages that you see by default and then you can go deeper or something like that you can say show me the errors too or something and i feel like that is kind of missing so for my purpose is specifically the two things, the two platforms that I use the most right now are JavaScript and CFML. CFML, you kind of just have like standard out basically. That's, or that's kind of how we're doing it. You know, we have CFML running in Docker containers and we have it set up in such a way that all of the important Lucy log files are being piped to standard out. And then that gets piped into CloudWatch so that all those logs that are relevant to us become available through CloudWatch, which is nice, but then you just kind of get like vomit, right? You just get, here's the 6,000 lines of logging that were spit out in the two minutes that you uh, pulled up. And it's painful. And it reminded me, especially, so there's this great module that I love um, called Debug in JavaScript, Node.js. And you can use it in the browser and you can use it with anything JS adjacent, right? Svelte or Vue or Angular, React, whatever. Works in a browser, works on server side, etc. And basically it is, you know, you use it and you call a function, you give it a, a, a string and it will return a function that you can then use to log things, right? So you, the string that you give it is like the log stream name. So you say, okay, I'm going to create a debug function. I'm going to create a trace function. I'm going to create a fatal function. You know, those are the strings that you pass in and then you save it as a function. You might call the function name debug and the function name fatal, etc. And then you just call those functions with whatever message that you want to log out. And that's in JavaScript parlance. It's not blocking, right? It, it happens off the main thread. And there's a lot of niceties about that particular module. And the way that they talk about it in their readme and the way that I see people using it is often with these log levels, right? Debug, trace, etc. But I think... And also, a very nice thing about debug is that the the module is that it it references an environment variable. So you say like debug equals 
error or star, right? If you do star, then all of the statements that get logged, not only by your code, but if you're using any modules and they're using the debug module, like Express.js uses debug. And so if you deb- if you turn on your application with the debug environment variable set to star, it spits out a ton of information about the various uh, requests that are being made to your server, which can be interesting and useful in some cases, but it can also be a distraction and noise. And so you can be very selective. You can say, only show me the ones for my application based on that string that you're using to create the log streams. And I feel stuck. And this is where you guys come in. You know, I, I want to get to that point where we have sophisticated logging that is always on, but then we can selectively drill down into to show more detail. And I, I don't feel like I have the tools for it or the knowledge. I feel like something's missing. Go. <laughs> Let me ask you one question initially, because you talked about taking the CFML logs and piping them to the standard output. Mm. So those are logs that you don't necessarily control, meaning, you know, when the the server is bootstrapping, it writes to a lot of logs. And when it checks the you know SMTP spool, it writes to logs, that kind of stuff. But then there is logging that happens inside of your business logic. You know, I I made a call to this API and it returned a 404 and it should have returned a 200. So now I'm going to log that because that was an unexpected response. Are you logging that as like a JSON payload? Like So typically what we call like structured logging as opposed to just a comma delimited list of field values? So it's a really good question. In our CFML specifically, no because we have two other outlets that we use to, to push that sort of stuff out. We, we use a bug logging tool, right? Like Bugsnag or, or Sentry or any of these other things that you know, are, are built for pushing errors into. And, and so we, we push to that when we have errors that we want to be logged for later. You know, Interesting. Okay, so you aggregation so just, and if I can say debugging. back to you what I think you just said to me, you have essentially differentiated system logging versus error logging as two separate means of recording information. Yeah, I think so. And honestly, there's not a whole lot. And and this is probably a a symptom of the problem, right? So there's not a whole lot that we push into the Lucy logs. Mostly it is logs automatically generated for us by Lucy. Occasionally, there's stuff that we spit out just as like reference for if the really hits the fan, we need to be able to go and see exactly what happened. But that's pretty rare. So when we, you're logging, though, to something like Bug Snag or, or whatever, I can't remember mm-hmm. which one you mentioned. We use Bug Log HQ, which is a okay, CFML yeah, yeah. project. But yeah. So I think, and typically with things like that, though, you can, you can give it a log level associated with the payload that you're sending. You're saying, record this and it's an error, record this and it's a warning. That's a really interesting thought. You're right. You can do that. The thing, and maybe I need to investigate this more because the thing that I think of the mental block for me there is that the the minimum atom of ATOM, not ADA, the minimum <laughs> atom of something that you can push into bug log. Again, this is my current understanding. And I think I might be wrong about this is an exception object, right? You have to have a, an exception to push into bug log because it's an exception logging tool. Now, granted, there are already plenty of instances where I wanted to log something because it is an exceptional case. It's just not that an exception was thrown, but, you know, whatever. And so 
I create an exception object and then we have it. it so Buglog will look for a property on your exception called extra info and print that out nicely for you at the bottom of that bug report. And so I will trump up my own little exception and then attach some data to it and log that as a way to push data into our bug log. Like, you know, we tried to pull this file off of S3. S3 says it's missing. Here right. are the credential. You know, here's the context for why we were looking for it. I can certainly relate to this pain because when we started logging stuff within our application, we started logging with the intent, intent of error tracking. So everything that you log has to have an error type and an error message as, mm-hmm. as like a minimum possible thing. But over time, you're like, not everything I want to log, to your point, is an error. But yeah. to this day, every no matter what you log, you have to call it an error message. And that's mm. how it shows up in, in all of the log aggregations, even if it's just a, you know, someone just upgraded to a paid plan or someone made mm. uh, a recurring donation of $10,000. I want to put that in the logs just in case. Right. And that's another example of a way that we kind of rolled our own solution because we had specific needs. So those types of things that you're describing to me sound like audit events, right? So we need to, they're, they're useful to us, but they're also useful to our customers, the users, the primary users of this. We've got like two different layers, right? So our customers are users of the admin layer of the system, and then their customers are users of the public-facing side. And so it's useful for them to be able to look at that audit trail and say, okay, you know, so-and-so tried to upgrade their membership and their credit card payment failed and then they tried again and it succeeded sort of thing. And so we can capture all those audit trail events in a database table and we, you know, try to cross-link them to all of the relevant records as appropriate. You know, this is the membership they were trying to do. This is the transaction that failed. This is the transaction that succeeded and all that. And so that's just, uh, that is at the end of the day, just a database table and a couple of different functions that make it easier to push data into that table and some tools for viewing the data that's in there. So that's auditing, which I would say is like sort of a special version of like maybe info log level, right? These are things happened that are interesting, not just like, so that that's the thing. Maybe we should talk about that a little bit, right? So you've got like, Oh goodness! I need to pull up the. There's a a really nice. Oh, I was doing it to again. Do it also, but it doesn't do it. Yeah, for me. the so we're we're giggling over here because every time I like make a hand gesture that's even remotely like thumbs up, my camera does this like stupid <laughs> thought bubble of a thumbs up icon. I hate it. I need to figure Is out how to turn that Adam? off. Is that the? It, yeah, it seems it like it. Everybody, everybody, thumbs up! Woo! No. Anyway, what was I saying? <laughs> Things that are. Not specifically errors, you know, there's like a different type of gesture, whatever. Right, right, yeah. So there's this, I said I've been ruminating on this for like years. There is a Stack Overflow that I've got like bookmarked here. Now I've got it, I've already found it again and pulled it back up. I'm I'm going to drop in our team chat, our Discord for just us. There's this flow chart of like when to use which log level, right? So you start with for whom am I writing the log line? And if the answer is developers, that takes you to another question, which is, do I need to log the states of variables? Yes or no? If it's no, then you're doing trace, right? I'm just saying, I'm at the beginning of this method. I'm about to leave this method. I'm in at this point in the while loop, whatever. Those are trace. But if you are logging the state of variables, then they go into debug. And then, so that was for developers, if you're logging. If you're logging for system operators, which I think that this is a little bit 
we're, we're switching paradigms in terms of the, the way that applications run anymore, right? So like, you know, raise your hand if you've got a team of people whose job it is to sit in the knock and watch the logs scroll by and look for errors, right? Like, Nobody's raising their, yeah, okay, Carol. Okay. <laughs> the government. Yeah. It's, it's a pretty not modern web dev approach to things, I think. But anyway, so you've got in this flowchart, system operators. If you're, if you're logging for system operators, then it's, do I, am I logging because of an unwanted state? If no, then info. If yes, then you go to the next question, which is, can the process continue with this, the unwanted state? If yes, then it's a warning. If no, then you move to the next question which is, can the application continue with the unwanted state? If yes, then error. If no, fatal. Right. So if if the reason that you're logging is because the application is about to die and crash and you're going to have to restart it or it'll automatically restart, whatever, that's fatal. If it's not that, then, but it was an error, then it goes an error. Right. So those are those are the log levels. Go ahead. It, 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 I, I don't mean to dominate the conversation here. So I don't want to, uh, let me just say my piece and then I'll, and Carol and Tim can jump in. However. I don't have a whole lot to say. So, so uh, you mentioned something about changing in paradigms in, mm-hmm. in programs. And and I think that is in some degree where so much of the confusion feels like it stems from. Because I'll, when I see a flowchart like this, it, it feels very much like an application that's running as a service somewhere and it has all this asynchronous processing and threads and stuff's happening in the background, which... It, you know, like you talked about opening up the console in the Mac and you have all these applications that are just running constantly and spewing state into the logs and you're not even using these applications or you're not, you know, interacting with them actively mm-hmm. at any one moment. That to me feels so very different than a web application where I make a request, the request comes in, it gets processed in a very deterministic fashion and it gives me some sort of outcome. And the the state and the reaction to state during that is so different from how a installed application might work. You know, you're going through this flowchart and we have a variable that's in an unexpected state. Can I do something about it? I, I think about something like I went to S3 to grab an object and it's supposed to be there, but it gives me a 404. Well, I'm not going to mm-hmm. crash the web server. That's clearly the wrong move. And right. I can't fix it, meaning I can't magically make this object appear. But I can certainly proceed and tell the user that either something unexpected went wrong or we looked for a file and it wasn't there. Can you please try to re-upload it? it web applications just feel like a completely different philosophical approach mm-hmm. to control flow than some of these older types of programming paradigms. And I think a lot of the thinking that goes into the logging doesn't make as much sense for web application developers. Okay, I have a response, but I, you're right that you and I have been kind of domineering the conversation here. So I want to give the others a chance to jump in before I respond. My only response is I keep working for companies who have lots of people handling all this. So they just give me access <laughs> to Sumo Logic or other log aggregates, and I just go find what I'm looking for or ask them to write me a query. Yeah, so. that's been one of the questions <laughs> in my head is like, is it just because we're not using like a data dog or a Sumo to, you know, do they have this sort of thing built in? And that's why I'm just not. So from, yeah, from previous jobs where we did a lot of manual looking through logs and going through Fusion Reactor to figure out where things were and trying to like open up application logs to see if we could throw something together for where something crashed at, Mm -hmm. I don't have to do that anymore because it's already put together for me in a nice view. Okay. So every log is already there. 
Yeah, and our a lot of our stuff runs as a kind of like a, what Ben was saying, sort of like a service. So we use this exact same model here that you're referring to with the trace and debug and info, warn, error, fatal. Because, you know, it's some, someone makes a request, we answer their request, and, you know, we, we log what came in, we log what, what came out. And if it's, it's, if it's an error or if it's, you know, unexpected, we, we do a warn or, or an error. So it works exactly like this. It's, it's, just, it's just a file, mm-hmm. right, that gets zipped up every night to save space every, every day. So if it so, was two days ago, you got to go grab it from, unzip it from two days ago. Yeah. The, so you're saying you use this, is it, but what is the end result? Do you just have like a text log file that has all these things and that each line is prefixed with trace or debug yep. or info? Yeah, okay. So each, and, each slide is prefixed with that, yeah. And and do you have a good way to filter down to like say, okay, only show me info or show me debug and error and warning or Yeah, I forget the name of the tool we use, but it's basically you can treat the file like it's a SQL query and you write SQL statements and it, it oh, to, yeah. to look at stuff. Okay. If you would do me a favor, you know, obviously not urgent, but just like look into what that tool is and let me know that would yeah. be possibly okay. useful. I mean, I it, I doubt it because we're just, I don't think we're going to give up CloudWatch, but it's, it would mm. be good to know, you know, a good jumping off point for research. So let me take this back a little bit and, and kind of respond to what you were saying, Ben. Mm-hmm. I, I think you did a good job articulating how I'm not explaining this well. <laughs> <laughs> so let me come at it from a different angle. Say we have a Lambda function and it gets invoked 30,000 times a day. And most of the time it's fine, but every now and then or in certain scenarios that we don't quite fully understand why it doesn't do the thing we want it to do and so what we would love to be able to do is always leave this highly detailed logging on in such a way that we can retroactively go back and look at the detailed logs but that also when we're just kind of checking in you know like what are our runtimes like and what are you know, I don't know, whatever summary information you might want to look at in the logs more frequently, the the two experiences should be different. And right. I understand what you're saying. I, I don't have a good way to separate those out right now. So, yeah. Okay. I I totally because, understand like, what you're saying. We can we could go in and for that particular lambda function, we could say, okay, you know, we know when we upload this file, it's gonna cause it to to be a problem. So we go in, we change the log level in the environment variables to say, okay, now I want you to start spitting out the total vomit of, of logs. And then we upload the file and then we turn the, the environment variable back to normal and then paw back through the logs. That's fine. But what that doesn't do is retroactive detailed logging. So I will, I will say that I, I don't have a specialized error-oriented logging strategy, meaning that we just spew stuff into... We use at work something called Logly, which I think is just a vendor on top of the Elk stack. What Elk was it's uh, Elastic Elastic Search something Kibana. Kibana, yeah. And it's just a, it's basically just a I think a document indexing system. So we just throw these JSON payloads into this giant system, and then we tell it to index certain keys within those payloads. So looking for things like log level and user ID and anything else that we want to be able to then filter on. But to your point, we don't send things like trace and debug 
and info logs in an ongoing way. We usually typically only include warning, error, and fatals. We do have a way to turn on some of the lower level logging. But again, to your point, it's not retroactive. It's from when you turned it on to when you turned right. it off. Yeah. We do, like I said, we use CloudWatch pretty heavily. And to go back to your earlier question, we do in a lot of places, and we're getting better about doing this in more and more places, use structured logging where we'll log a JSON object out, especially because in CloudWatch, there's tools. I forget if this is what's called. Lo- there's too many damn things inside of AWS. Uh, <laughs> yes. So maybe this is CloudWatch Insights. Maybe this is a different thing. Uh, but there's a, a neat tool where you can kind of it looks a lot like SQL to search through your CloudWatch logs. You can say, okay, yeah. I want you to search this log group and I want you to look for an object containing, you know, customer equals XYZ. And, you know, you could say, you know, log level equal trace or whatever, you know, depending on how you log that out. And, and that's been very helpful for us. We're still, like I said, getting better about that. But in the places that we've got it, it's been fantastic. Yeah, structured logging is super, super helpful. Although I will throw out one warning about your logging. Don't uh-huh. log any PII. Oh, yeah. yeah that no, could get you in some trouble. This is we do our best identifiable information. PII. Yes. yes. Yeah. yeah. We, we do our absolute best to not have any of that to begin with, but some of it is just unavoidable. You know, you've got yeah. people's names and addresses and stuff from, from having their billing info for their credit card or, or whatever. Yep. Or for their membership or for, you know, we've, we deal it to some respects in PII. That is like our business. But yes, we do jump through a lot of hoops to try and make sure it never appears in any of our logs. Yeah, our logs are kind of cool because it'll be like, oh, we weren't able to validate. And it says like, click this link to go find out why this information wasn't logged. And it's like, because it was PII. It was like yeah. not able to work. And I'm like, well, I'll never know what that was. It's gone forever. Yeah. Can I, can I throw out a spicy take? Ooh. Yeah, let's get spicy here. I think the root of so many logging issues is people just not handling errors very well. Yeah. I, I think if people caught errors and log them appropriately, you basically wouldn't need trace and debug and probably info logs at all. I, I find, so it work. And, and again, this kind of ties back into this idea of Different, different types of system paradigms and how they've changed over time. I mm-hmm. think if you get people who were like systems thinkers, like working on old installed systems, and then they move into the web application space, that's those are the people who I think are most guilty of putting tracing statements all over the place because they didn't have yeah. a, a browser they could refresh and then look at the logs or look at the the output of the page. So, so the logs where the, that was their interface. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so you see things like, you know, That's request right. received, method started, method completed, request processed. Yeah. And when, you, when I see that in a web it's application, useless. I'm like, what the F were you doing? And, it, and it, I'm telling you, like 99% of the time, somebody put that in because somewhere deep in the code, they caught an error and didn't log it properly. And now they have like stuff just stopped working. And they have no idea why. So now they just start putting all these logs in all over the place. And if they had just logged the error instead of catching it and then having a comment that said something went wrong, oh, you know, uh, they wouldn't need all of this stuff. That's their their version of uh, CF dump, CF abort, and hit F5. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. 
So that's my spicy yeah. take. Bad error handling is the root of so many logging issues. I, I think you're right in in at least some way, right? Like there, there's an element of truth here, and I think that if I if I can turn that log over, in addition to what you're saying, it probably is also an indication of missing tests, right? If, if or or code that is not very testable, right? right. So you're you're leaning uh, on the logs. Ooh. I feel like. Yeah, I feel like I am more inclined to do console.log driven development when I'm working on code that, you know, especially if it's like 10 years dot, 10 year, dot old, 10 years old. And God, I got to stop holding my hand up. That stupid thumbs up. <laughs> if I'm working on old code and it's not testable and and I don't have time to refactor it to be testable and don't have time to write the test, you know, like that's, I think that's when I lean into this whole like sort of trace based debugging because mm-hmm. mm. if you well, yeah, you know if it was testable like, code and you could just be like okay here are the inputs that you might get and this, these are the expected outputs then boom does done, it tested. work yes right yeah you find the error from the broken test not mm-hmm. having to look through the logs oh, i think show. there are also and this is this is a technology issue as much as it is a people issue but i think logs existed far before the prevalence of widespread use of metrics so you know right now let's let's say that that you have a a message queue and you have a worker pulling messages from a message queue mm-hmm. in in a more modern context I'm, i'll say modern in quotes because it's i don't mean it as a judgment i mean in terms of like the technology that we have at our fingertips in a more modern context you might log a stats d metric that said i pulled something off of a queue and then you process it and whether you're going to ACK it or NAC it or whatever the terminology is, you might log another metric that I have a message that was processed properly or a message that failed. And then you can aggregate that in, in Graphite or, or, or Datadog and you see it as a graph. And I think that's a more appropriate way to log that kind of stuff. But before we had things like StatsD, you might throw that into a trace or a debug log message because you literally didn't really have another good strategy for handling that kind of stuff. And so I think some of this is also just not replacing older paradigms with newer paradigms in terms of system health. Hmm. Lots of food for thought. I have another one more spicy take. Uh, and this is something that I can't Do we need stand. to get Sean Evans in here? Or? <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> you from the guy who can't handle spicy. Uh, one thing that I cannot stand, and this is, I am definitely fighting against the currents here. I, I do not like the idea of using numbers for log levels. Like 10 is trace oh, no. and 20 is oh, info and 30 is born. It, yeah, it's magical numbers. It's, so yeah, okay. it's totally, yeah, good point. It's a magical number. Clean code says, do not use this. And Mm -hmm. I don't know if it's maybe because I've been in the node world a lot and maybe a lot of the common node loggers happen to use this and maybe it just feels more prevalent than it actually is. But I just, I cannot stand it. I would much rather just use a string that says debug or trace or info or warn. You got a microphone in front of you. You don't want to throw anybody under the bus? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> these particular node modules i mean I, I was just kidding but no, i i i don't think it's any particular one i think it i think it's a very very common way to handle logging that when you call warn or debug in in the methods that you're generating under the hood it's saying 
it's translating those into numbers. And that's what's getting persisted in the log data most often that I've seen. And it just drives me bonkers. Good take. Yeah, no, I can't, can't disagree with that. I guess sort of like a, if I can wrap my own thoughts up here, it sounds to me like I'm too focused on the, the concept that maybe we've lost something to in the rush to innovate, right? Maybe, maybe it doesn't exist because we don't need it anymore. And, and maybe it's also like these, these places where we need the logs is a symptom of a different and more important problem. I'm getting nodding heads. Yeah, I I, I (laughs) think that sounds right. (laughs) Cool. I'm sure our listeners will have something to add to it for us. Indeed. And they can... Let me, bro. (laughs) They can add us in our Discord. All right. Well, I guess this episode of The Woodsman's Code was brought to you by elks and yaks and logs (laughs) and bots. And listeners like you, If you're enjoying the show and you want to make sure that we can keep putting more of whatever this is out into the universe, then you should consider supporting us on Patreon. Our patrons cover our recording and editing costs and transcription. I still haven't added that to the notes. And transcription costs. And we could do this every week without them. Special thanks to our top patrons, Monty and Giancarlo. You guys rock. We are going to go record our after show, which is a perk for our patrons. The, uh, the outro is going to play, maybe some bloopers. There's been a few flub lines tonight, so maybe some bloopers. And then we're going to do the after show. And tonight on the after show, we're going to talk about... Uh, Ben's going to rant about people at gas pumps, apparently. Uh, oh, and we, we can't not talk about the open AI news, Sam Altman, and all of that stuff that's been going on. OMG. So, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll have some thoughts <laughs> there. So if that sort of thing interests you then you should go to patreon.com slash workingcodepod, become a patron of the show, and you get to keep listening with the rest of the the patrons. If you have thoughts on these problems, these topics, and you would like to share them with us and the rest of the community, you can go to Discord, to our Discord, at workingcode.dev slash Discord. It's just like Slack, except better for communities. (laughs) Um, So we'd like to see you there. That's going to do it for us this week. We'll catch you next week. And until then... Remember, your heart matters, even if you're yak shaving. (laughs) You've been listening to Working Code with your hosts, Adam, Ben, Carol, and Tim. If you're enjoying the show, please feel free to rate, subscribe, and review on your preferred podcast listening platform. We really appreciate that effort. We'll catch you on the next episode of Working Code.